as a child, it always seemed like that time between Thanksgiving and Christmas took a long time. Now, as, as adults, we realize, man, we're busy and that time flies. But when, when I was a kid, you used to get the J.C. Penny or Sears catalog, and you'd be looking through that, and then Thanksgiving would come, and then you'd just have those next weeks, and you'd be waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for Christmas to come. I kind of felt like uh, one of the chipmunks, you know, Alvin and the chipmunks, you know, we've been good, but it we can't last. Hurry Christmas, hurry fast kind of a thing. You know, we, we've got we've got to get here. And yet... As we think about the words of Isaiah, when he talks about the coming Emmanuel, we have over 700 years. But when God makes a promise, understand God always keeps his promises. So take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. And then also turn to Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to be thinking today about the coming of Emmanuel. Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to pick up reading in verse number 13. And then we'll read in Matthew chapter 1. Isaiah seven thirteen. Isaiah said, listen, house of David. Is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring on you, your people, and your father's house such a time as has never been since Ephraim separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Now take your Bibles and slide over with me to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse number 20. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. Here, Joseph is thinking about uh, what to do after Mary has shared that she is pregnant. It says in Matthew one twenty. but after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, the prophet Isaiah. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And with that, let's pray together. Lord, as we open the truth of of your word today, I ask that you would speak to us and challenge us Help us to be people who understand that you always keep your promises. And may we be people that stand in the faith. In your name, amen. 
Isaiah chapter 7 and verse number 1 tells us that while Isaiah is sharing this prophecy that King Ahaz is on the throne. And we can just get a little picture of who King Ahaz is. So we have to go back into history just a little bit of the nation of Israel. You remember under King Saul... David and Solomon, there was one nation of Israel, but they split in 931 BC and there were 10 northern tribes called Israel and two southern tribes called Judah. Ahaz is a king in Judah. Now, as he is the king in Judah, you may not recognize Ahaz name per se, but you probably would recognize the name of his grandfather. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah has this vision, it was the year that King Uzziah died when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. So Ahaz's grandfather is a man named King Uzziah. King Uzziah started and was a great and wonderful king. Second Chronicles chapter 26 tells us how the Lord was moving and blessing in Uzziah's life and things were going well and the nation of Judah was flourishing. However, During the time when he was uh, king and he was flourishing and God was blessing and all was going well, it tells us that Uzziah became filled with pride and he walked into the temple thinking, look, I can not, I can be the king, but I can also be a priest. So he goes into the temple and decides he's going to try to be the priest around here as well. And the priests come out and they stand against him and he raises the scepter against the priest and the Lord. Lord strikes Uzziah with leprosy. And from that moment on, Uzziah now is unclean. He can no longer enter into the temple and he can no longer be in close proximity with his family. So Uzziah, as king, uh, now is limited in his capacity and his family apparently takes this in a bitter fashion because Uzziah's son is named Jotham and Jotham becomes king in Second Chronicles 27 and he is an okay moral guy. The people are doing evil around him, but it tells us that he will not go into the sanctuary, that Jotham will not have a spiritual life that he will not go into the temple. You you have to think that in his life, after seeing his grandfather go into the temple uh, and and being filled with pride, but not understanding that part, the thinking, look what what happened to my uh, my dad, that now Jotham says, I'm not going into the temple at all. Jotham's son then becomes King Ahaz. And if you look in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, it tells us that Ahaz was exceedingly wicked and opened back up all of the doors of idolatry, and even himself sacrificed to the Baals. And it tells us even that he sacrificed his children as sacrifices. We we get this picture, and and may I say there's there's grandparents in here, I, I would say and just challenge us to say, look, we need to finish well. We don't need to, to let our hearts go unguarded. Because that's still, even after we've seen God bless and move in our life, when we get off course, it can still have a stark effect on our family. So we see Uzziah now has, has kind of went his way and he got off 
of uh, track with God. Jotham says, I'm just going to do my own thing. I'll be a good guy, but I'm not getting on track with God at all. And Ahaz says, I don't even care about God. Man, I'll just go sacrifice to whoever I want, bring back the high places, we'll, we'll do idolatry, immorality, everything and anything can go. During this time, however, we find that Israel is in a very challenging predicament. And it's in this and with this backdrop that we find that the promise of Isaiah comes. So as we think about this, I want us to think about this promise that God is making and the promise that God always keeps. So first off, we find the Lord shared a promise in Isaiah's day. The Lord shared a promise in Isaiah's day. Now, actually, Isaiah went to Ahaz two times in the opening uh, verses in Isaiah 7. The first time he goes to him, he goes and he says, look, I know that you are afraid. If you look in Isaiah chapter 7 in verse number 2, he, Isaiah says, I, I, you are afraid. He, he gives the picture. It says, when it became known that the house to the house of David, that Aram occupied Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the hearts of his people, trembled like trees of a forest shaking in the wind. So Ahaz is like a tree in the wind. He's shaking. So what's going on? What is the problem of that day? The problem of that day is that the Assyrian Empire is up to the far north and they are making their way toward uh, Israel and toward Judah. And Judah and Aram or Syria have come together and said, look, we're going to stand against us, Syria, together. And matter of fact, we want Judah to join us so that us three, the three nations, can now fight against the Assyrian Empire. But Ahaz will have nothing to do with it. Ahaz says, look, I'm not joining you two nations to, to get involved in that. And because Ahaz won't join those two nations to fight against Assyria, guess what happens? Israel and Syria or Aram then attack Judah and they begin to to destroy and and reap destruction and they begin to take lives there's casualties and this is why Ahaz is afraid it's not the Assyrian empire it's Israel and Syria that are coming against him and so Isaiah comes to him and in verse number 4 he tells him look stay calm Cool it, man. The Lord's going to take care of those two nations and they are going to get wiped off by the Assyrians. The Assyrians are going to come and take them. But he says something very interesting as well. He tells them, hey, you're not going to be taken over in, in, in your life. But he says something at the end of verse number nine that I think is noteworthy for all of us. Notice in Isaiah 7, 9, he says at the end to King Ahaz, if you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. Now, this is a good place to pause. Or if you mark in your Bible, that's a really good thing to mark. He tells King Ahaz, if you will not stand in your faith, you will not stand at all. Now, the, the problem is, is man, now I not only have this threat of the biggest Syrian empire, I have this threat of these two nations that are right up against me, and they're coming after me. And Isaiah says, look, they're not going to overtake you, but the Lord is speaking to you and saying this, 
Ahaz, you better get back on course. And if you won't stand in your faith, then you won't stand at all. Hey, we live in a world right now where anything goes. We, we live in a world where, where culture stands against the things of Christ. We, we stand right now in a, in a world where, where we understand that, that Christians are often villainized because they stand for Christ. Now listen, we as believers today who call on the name of Jesus, we do not put our Bibles on the ground and stand over that in authority and say, hey, we can believe whatever we want and we'll take the parts and, uh, of what God says. No, 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 we, we don't have that right. We can't interpret it how we want and live how we want. No, we, we don't stand on our Bible. Further, we don't have our Bible just be our buddy next to us and say, oh yeah, well, I can take this and leave this. I'll take a little bit of this love and grace, but I don't want to have anything to do with that justice. No, we take God's word as the authority of our life so that everything that we see, that our heart understands, our mind grasps, is all under the authority of God's word. We have a biblical view of everything going on, and we have a biblical view of morality and theology. So that when we understand what's going on in our culture, you realize since May, when the Dobbs decision broke that overturned Roe v. Wade, did, do you know that over a hundred crisis pregnancy centers, nonprofits that uh, support pro-life and churches have been vandalized? You understand? There are people that hate the truth of the Bible, and they will fight against you. And yet, understand, if you're not going to stand in faith, you're not going to stand at all. And now let's get to the real, a real hot button issue, especially for you students, college students, young adults. And that is in the area of morality when it comes to, to sex, and, and the challenge is, is everything is, is, is anything goes out in the world. And yet the Bible clearly shows us that God created male and female. He created marriage between a man and a woman. And so what happens when we stand on that? There are those who come against us. So this past week, someone walked into Club Q, we won't go into all that, who declared himself to be non-binary and took lives. And can I just tell you, people are created in the image of God, and any time lives are taken, it's horrible and horrific. But what happened afterwards, if you watched the news, or maybe you watched certain news channels that didn't put that on, right after that, focus on the family, founded by James Dobson, now led by uh, Mr. Daly, was vandalized. And afterwards, what did people often do? What did they say? It's because of those who are sharing hate toward that community. We're not sharing hate. We're just standing firm in our faith. We don't hate anybody. We're not mad at anybody. We're, we're, not, we're not fighting, but we are standing. And so what happened was that focus on the family was vandalized... And we as uh, believers came to the place where we are villainized because we stand for the truth. So understand, verse number 9 of Isaiah 7 has to be in our hearts. 
If you're not going to stand firm in your faith, you're not going to stand at all. And you're going to have to make a choice in your life somewhere along the line. Either you can be your authority or some talking head can be your authority or some political pundit can be your authority or your mama or whoever believes what can be your authority or God's word can be your authority, but you can't have it all. There's got to be one that is that voice of authority in our life. And, and for me, we stand firm in our faith. And listen, again, we speak the truth in love. We stand in love. We're not mad at anybody, but this is God's authority. And on that we rest. And we're going to stand in our faith. And we are not going to fall. That's the truth of where we are. So the problem of that day, that's part of the problem of this day. Did, did you know that just sometimes I believe that God allows evil leaders as a punishment for evil people? And because of that, I think Ahaz is there in leading in 730 BC. But even through all the darkness, even through all of the idolatry and immorality. Isaiah has come one time and brought the message, hey, Syria and, and uh, Israel are not going to destroy you. And he comes back again around verse number 11 or 12. And he comes back and he says, look, you need to ask the Lord for a sign. And he says, I'm not asking the Lord for a sign. This is not out of piety. This is out of a phony piety. Oh, I'm not going to test the Lord. He really didn't have a relationship with the Lord and really didn't care about the Lord. He doesn't want a sign. So the Lord says in verse number 14, well, I'm going to give you a sign. And here's the sign. A virgin is going to give birth to a son and his name is going to be called Emmanuel. So we not only see the problem of that day, then we see the promise of that day. The promise is, is there's going to be a virgin that conceives and brings forth a son. And this is going to be a tremendous and terrific moment in Israel. Now, as we think about Isaiah being a prophet, we understand that there has to be a dual fulfillment of this prophecy. That if Isaiah was going to be a true prophet, then something had to happen at that time in Isaiah's life in order for him to be believable. Many believe that what happens is, is somewhere along the line, Isaiah's first wife has died. So Isaiah then, in the opening verses of chapter 8, verses 1 and following, uh, is it gathers with a prophetess, remarries, has relations, and they have a son whose name is Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Now, if you look in uh, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, there his name is, is given there. His name means quick to plunder and swift to the spoil. And what it is, is the Lord is saying, you're going to have this son. And before this son gets very old, what's going to happen is I'm going to take the, the nation of Israel and I'm going to take the Syrians and I am going to overthrow them and wipe them up. And Assyria is going to come and get them. 
The Assyrians are going to take them. That's why in verse number 17, it talked about the king of Assyria. Who's coming in? So Isaiah is going to have this baby. This is the initial fulfillment. And this baby at birth is going to be a sign that God is going to take these other two nations and he is going to wipe them up so that Judah will be saved. That's the initial fulfillment. The initial fulfillment. But there will be an ultimate fulfillment. And that ultimate fulfillment comes in Matthew 1. As we think about the Lord shared a promise in in Isaiah's day, but the Lord fulfilled a promise in Jesus' day. So the promise was given. There's this initial fulfillment that takes place, but then there is this complete, or this full context of fulfillment that happens. So take your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 1 and pick up with me again in verse number 20. Again, this is 700 and about 30 years before Jesus comes. God makes his promise, but then in Matthew 1, we find that God keeps his promise. And all through this time, Israel is challenged, or Judah is challenged. Stand firm in your faith or you won't stand at all. And can I tell you that after the Assyrians come and take the northern empire, it's not but just over a hundred years later when the Babylonians come and take all of it, including Judah. Why? They did not stand in their faith. So they didn't stand at all. But The promise, the promise and the fulfillment of that promise takes place in Matthew 1. You think waiting for four or five weeks for Christmas is long. Here we find in Matthew 1, Joseph there and the angel coming to him and saying, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is the ultimate fulfillment of the virgin conceiving. The ultimate fulfillment. The one had had just this initial picture of salvation. This is going to have the grand picture of salvation. You know, Isaiah in Isaiah 9, 6 would say that unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And now here we find That baby has arrived. But the baby has arrived first through a virgin birth. That's what was prophesied in Isaiah 7. But notice how many times this is emphasized in the book of Matthew as well. Notice in verse number 18 that before they came together, she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Notice in verse number 20, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Notice down in verse number 23, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son. Notice in verse number 25, They did not have relations with her until she gave birth to her son. The picture is, is that there would be a birth, but it would not just be a natural birth. It would be supernatural. Why is that important for us? Well, the reason that it's important is because we as humans pass down a sin nature. Ephesians 2, 3 says that we are all by nature children of wrath. Even Psalm 51, David would say that I was conceived in iniquity. That does not mean that his, his, his mom and dad did something immoral. No, the picture is, is he was born with a sin nature. But Jesus would be born of the Holy Spirit and placed into the womb of Mary so that that 
He would not have a nature to sin because he's fully God. He's absolutely holy. He can't have sin on him and in him. He can't be born like that. So there is the virgin birth. We picture Jesus, this, this awesome, awesome picture the Holy Spirit conceives within her. The virgin never had relations, and yet now she's pregnant. But notice what it says as well. It, it tells us that, that not only would there, there be the, the fulfillment of the virgin birth, but there would be the fulfillment of the son who was born. Notice in verse 23, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son. We think about him being conceived by the Holy Spirit in his deity. We think about him being a son in his humanity. You know, as we think about children, uh, if, if you were to get pregnant today, uh, of, of boys versus girls, there's about 105 boys born to 100 girls. Okay, that's just the way it works out. Just over 50% of babies born are boys, okay? You know, I said, look, look at my family. I mean, just filled with, with boys. And anyway, but can I tell you for Jesus, there, there hadn't, didn't need to be any wondering about the gender. Obviously, we're long before any kind of machines or blood tests that would tell you the gender. But what would happen? The son was going to be born because that's what God said. And God makes and keeps his promises. The son was going to be born. And then ultimately, the fulfillment of the virgin birth, the fulfillment of the son who was born, and then the fulfillment of Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. So that Jesus, when, when he was born, was so human that people did not recognize his deity. And yet, he lived a perfect life and would be absolutely perfect as a sacrifice for our sin. We think about Jesus. We think about this moment, God with us. We, we recognize his deity He was born of the Holy Spirit. We think about his humanity. That, that as John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God. That's what it's basically saying in John 1, 1 and 2. Jesus is fully God. But then in John 1, 14, it tells us, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we have the deity of Jesus. We have the humanity of Jesus. And this is essential because of the availability or the accessibility of Jesus. Jesus Jesus is uh, fully man, fully God, and we can relate to him. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in our weakness. We have one who, who had uh, fingers and knees and, and elbows and head and shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes. And, and Jesus was there in the flesh. And the truth is, is that as Jesus was laid in that manger, and we'll look at that in, in just a week, as he was laid in that manger, fully God, fully man, he was ultimately the one who was going to make a way of availability for salvation to all of us. The Lord fulfilled a promise in Jesus' day 
Emmanuel had come. God with us was here. But can I tell you, the story doesn't end there. It's not that Isaiah had a prophecy 730 years before Jesus came and then Jesus was born and now that's over. No, the Lord offers, the Lord offers a promise for us in this day, in the here and in the now. There is a promise that we can receive today, here, now, so that it's not, we're not just looking back at history and saying, man, that was wonderful, and Jesus is in a manger, and and how beautiful, and, and what a great picture, and what an act of love. No, it goes much further than that. And look with me in Matthew 121 to get the picture of what this really means. Matthew 121. It says this, she will give birth to a son, And you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus. You know, in our culture, we can talk a lot about God. We can talk about God. Nobody's really offended if you talk about God most of the time. But you talk about Jesus... And there is division. What does it say here? It says his name is going to be Jesus. He's going to save from sins. This this message, the message of Jesus being the only one who can save, is very exclusive. Everybody wants to, 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 to be right. I'm right. You're right. We're all right. And yet Jesus, as he comes, the Lord says, and his name will be Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Jesus would echo this in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. What people want today is we want to live our own way, believe what we want to about God, and everybody goes to heaven and all is okay. And that is just not the picture. The Bible lays it out very clearly. There is one who can save from sin. There is one who is the way, the truth, and the life. There is one. So that when the early apostles were going through the Roman Empire filled with their idolatry and immorality, they would say about Jesus, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's Jesus alone. Or that they would, uh, Paul would say to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't just say, be sincere in whatever you believe and you'll be okay. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And everybody loves John 3.16. It's the verses after that sometimes people don't love as much. In John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned all 
ready. Now listen, those are dividing words. Those are challenging words. Those are words that can, man, take that, that, that group that you're visiting with and hanging out with and change the tide of a conversation around a lunch table in a heartbeat. Because everyone wants to believe what they believe and be okay. And the Bible makes it clear, Jesus is the answer and the only way of salvation. And there's no stuttering, there's no stammering, there's no compromise. And we're not mad at anybody, but we speak the truth in love and say, Jesus is it. As a matter of fact, we say this. There are people who will choose not to bow down to Jesus now. But in Philippians 2, 9, it tells us, therefore, after his death, therefore, God has given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. Things in heaven, things on earth, things under the earth. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's it. There's one way. So... As we think about this picture, Jesus saves. We find the fulfillment of the sal- of salvation is first secured in the cross. It is secured in the cross. We recognize that he's called Je- Jesus because God saves. Jesus saves us from our sin. How did he do that? He went to the cross. So that in Isaiah 53, 6, it tells us that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. God laid on Jesus, on him, the iniquity of us all. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. This salvation is not just secured at the cross, but it is received by faith that we are to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not how good I can be. It's not my good outweighing my bad. It's not me comparing myself with you or you comparing yourself with me. It's a matter of faith alone that is the only way we get to heaven. For by grace are you saved through faith. Faith. It's belief. Read the Gospel of John, 90 plus times the word believe is used. And then this salvation is also anticipated in the future. Can I tell you, in our life, there was that moment that Jesus died. There was that moment that we received Jesus. But can I tell you, the best is yet to come. The best, our salvation is being worked out in our sanctification in our present life. But the best is yet to come. For we will see him and we'll be like him. For we will see him as he is. Or Jesus said in John 14 to his disciples, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. What a beautiful picture. We've been waiting. They waited 700 plus years from the day that Isaiah prophesied till Jesus came. We've been waiting 2,000. As a matter of fact, let's just put our history caps on just for a minute. Do, Do you even know what was going on 700 years ago in our world? 700 years ago, around 1347 to 1353, the Black Death, bubonic plague spread through Europe, killing, they don't even know the numbers. They guess 19 to 35 million people. Now listen, that's 700 years ago. Now understand that this is still 150 years prior to Columbus in 1492. 
That's a long time. 700 years is a long time. We've been waiting 2,000. Why hasn't Jesus come? I think scripture answers the question. In 2 Peter 3, 9, Peter says this. The Lord is not slack or slow concerning his promise, as men count slackness, but he is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why hasn't Jesus come? I think there's one more soul that needs to be saved. I think there's one more person who needs to say, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, come into my life. There's one more person who needs to look to the cross and find forgiveness. But I believe there will come a day when that last person will bow the knee and call on the name of the Lord. And when that happens, Jesus is coming. Can I ask you today, are you ready to meet him? Do you know that you know Jesus? Do you need to cry out, oh, come Emmanuel into my life today. Jesus, I know I've sinned. And I know you died on the cross to pay the punishment for my sin. Forgive me, Jesus, come into my life. Oh, come, oh, come Emmanuel. We're not guaranteed the next seven minutes or seven hours or seven days. And it may be that the Lord waits for another 700 years. But I know, I'm glad I know, whether I go or he comes, I'm ready. Are you ready? With that, let's pray. Today, do you know that you're ready to meet Jesus? Look, if you're trying to get to heaven by good works, by being a good person, doing good things, the Bible says you are going to fall fall woefully short. He calls you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith. Trust Jesus alone today. God made his promise. God kept his promise. God made his promise that Jesus is going to come. And Jesus will keep that promise and will return. Are you ready if he returns today? Or if you go to meet him? In just a moment, we're going to have a time of reflection. And Pastor Jerry and Pastor Tim and myself will all be here in the front if you want to pray with one of us. Maybe in your heart today, you need to cry, Oh, Emmanuel, Jesus, save me from my sin. Come into my life. Forgive me. If you've never done that before, Today's the day. Today's the day. Lord, take these next moments of invitation. Draw. Draw us closer to you. And Lord, for those of us who already know you, may we just be reminded of the great grace that we have received in Christ. And may you make us bold witnesses to go forth this week. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus today, we recognize the working of your spirit. Lord, may they come. In Jesus' name.